Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today columnist Brian Lilly looks at the government's fall economic update and says they still have a spending problem. SFU criminologist Rob Gordon looks at BC's two largest cities and the policing issues facing Vancouver and Surrey. BC Family Doctors Executive Director Dr. Renee Fernandez breaks down more details in the New Deal offer to our family docs in BC. And automotive journalist Jeremy Cato doesn't have much time for solar power, but agrees EVs have definitely caught on in Canada. So let's get started. Brian Lilly joins us. Mr. Lilly is a post-media national columnist who is a, a fun guest and we always welcome widely to this program. Uh, Brian's going to talk about the uh, financial update delivered by the Government of Canada just a couple of days ago. Brian, good morning. Good morning to you, Sterling. It was, uh, was it the update that I was expecting? Well, I'm looking at the headline you wrote as a reaction. Trudeau's spending problem persists despite promises of balanced budget. The Trudeau liberals only do how to do one thing. Take your money and spend more of it. That sounds a little disapproving, if you don't mind my saying. <laughs> well, uh, it, because it is. The way that Christian Freeland, the finance minister, was setting this up, pre-positioning this ahead of her big announcement on Thursday, uh, was that, well, you're going to see a a tightening, that she knows that we've got to have um, uh, uh, less spending, because if the government spends too much, that it adds to inflation. I'm sorry, it's my uh, washing machine calling up. (laughs) Technical details, okay. Going off in the background. Yeah. You know, instead, they've added 20 billion of new spending since April. So they had their April budget. This is supposed to be the fall economic statement. Right. And, you know, at a time when she's saying we've got to rein in spending, they're adding 20 billion of new spending. Overall, I looked at the uh, total government spending compared to the pre-pandemic, because what they're telling us is that, well, the pandemic spending is over now. Okay, well, are we back to where we were before? No, spending is up 44%. Imagine that for your household budget. That, okay, we we had to spend a lot more during the pandemic for various reasons. We're not doing those pandemic supports. The wage subsidies gone. The the subsidies to businesses are gone. Those are all over. And spending still up 44%. Yeah. Well, here's now. Hang on, just a second. We have a little uh, clip of uh, the minister and the rationale behind all of this. Look, help is arriving today. Those GST checks are arriving in your mailbox or in your bank account today, and you have some additional support. That $500 top-up for people struggling with the rent that is coming. Dental care for kids under 12 that is coming. And we announced yesterday that we're going to eliminate interest on federal student and apprentice loans. And we are going to start paying in advance the Canada Workers Benefit. That's up to $2,400 for really hardworking, poorly paid Canadian families. And we're not going to make you wait for a whole year to get it. You're going to get it while you're working. The relentlessly condescending Christian Freeland and the rationale behind the extra spending, uh, it seems as though the government has taken it upon himself, uh, itself, rather, Brian, to be the great rescuer of all Canadians in distress. 
Whereas if they had listened to uh, some of the cold-hearted bank economists, um, they, they should have been tightening their belt on the spending side a while ago because instead what has happened is they, they've relied solely on the Bank of Canada to deal with inflation. And you remember, inflation's been a problem for a while now. You know, we, we try and keep inflation between 2 and 3%. That's sure. a manageable level. It went up to 4.5%. Last year, um, you'll recall that in the middle of the election, the prime minister said he doesn't really think about monetary We We recall that, yes. And, and I said at the time, well, if you don't, then you don't think about family budgets. Because if interest rates go up, then your mortgage rate goes up. Your line of credit payments go up. For many people, their credit card payments go up because interest rates are rising. And that hurts everybody. That's on top of the food inflation that we're all dealing with, the price of gas going up. These are additional things. And, and many economists said to the government, if you rein in your spending a bit, cut the discretionary spending, then the Bank of Canada won't have to raise interest rates as much as they did. Instead, as I just said, $20 billion more in the current fiscal year than they announced in the April budget. Right. $20 billion. For each of the next two years, $24 billion more per year than they announced in the April budget. So the spending is going up, but it's not all going to those programs that you talked about because we have a debt and the interest rates are rising. Absolutely. So can I give you a couple more numbers on that? Sure, yeah, sure. Okay, so this, this is all in the column and you can find it all in the fall economic statement as well. So again, compared to the April budget in April, they said that we would be spending $26.9 billion this year okay. just to pay the interest on the debt. Right. We don't pay off our debt. We just pay. It, it's like when you get one of those bad loans or bad credit card bills and you never pay it down, but you pay just the requirement, right? You're mm-hmm. just paying the interest. We were supposed to pay $26.9 billion this year. That's up to $34.7 billion this year. And next year, rising, it's going to rise from $26.9 billion, they projected in April, to $43.3 billion just to service the debt. We're spending more than the Liberals promised on many of their signature programs, like child care. We're spending more to service the debt than we do on our military each year. This is not financially healthy. Right. And Brian, the other part of the equation is in addition to uh, the debt servicing costs that restricts the ability of the government to actually have that fun- those funds available to do some of the programs they've talked about and continue to insist are going to be accomplished. So the only way that's going to happen is to borrow more money, right? Well, exactly. So imagine what you could do with that. Um, what, what number did I just give you there? Uh, uh, $43.3 billion. That's right. What could you do with $43.3 billion? That's the money that we're just spending on the interest of the debt. That's, that's like paying your minimum credit card payment. That has gone up dramatically for two reasons. One, uh, the Trudeau government has added to the debt, and not just because of the pandemic. Um, if you remember, he was elected in 2015. He said three small deficits of $10 billion mm-hmm. a year. To stimulate the economy. He went to three times that level, and that was before the pandemic. Um, in good times, Justin Trudeau believes it's the government's job to spend on everything to stimulate the economy. In bad times, Justin Trudeau believes it's the government's job to spend. So, you, you know, this idea of spend to stimulate the economy, this Keynesian economics idea, 
it, it's supposed to be balanced off that in good times, you don't spend as much. In a bad time, you spend more. Trudeau has only spent more, only added to the debt, only added to this uh, interest payment that we have to make so that now it's $43 billion. We could We could pay for the military and an even bigger child care program that we have and still not be spending what we're spending on the debt. Yeah. Brian, as you've observed uh, numerous times over the years, the character flaw, uh, pretty universal among millions of Canadian voters, is the tendency to vote for the political party that promises them the most goodies, even if they have to go borrow more to give them to them. Do you think there's kind of a finite end to that wish list? Or is there a change in attitude in the voting population about this at all? Or are we just going to go with the flow? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people will always go to um, what essentially amounts to uh, bread and circuses. You know, what are you going to give me? So, you know, all the, the, the clip you played of Kirsty Freeland, there's a, a lot of goodies that she's giving out there. Now, yes. most of that is to low-income Canadians who need help. And if I was in that position, I'd be saying, well, thank goodness I'm getting something. Here's the problem with what they're doing. They're doing that because inflation is high, which drives up the cost of living for all of us. By giving people more money that they will spend immediately, it doesn't help inf- reduce inflation. It actually may make it slightly worse. Yeah. There's not enough money going in to make a big difference, but it will make it slightly worse. This help is only six months. So in six months, they're supposed to take it away. Uh, Inflation will still be there because the government isn't acting effectively to deal with it. So they give people six months reprieve. At the end of six months, they've either got to extend these programs or just tell them, "Okay, you're on your own to deal with inflation now. It's an incredibly frustrating situation from a government that is economically illiterate. And it's not just me who says that now. It's, you know, people like former finance minister Bill Morneau, who left because he tried to warn them that they were on the wrong path and they wouldn't listen. Uh, You know, this is a government that doesn't think they they believe in new modern monetary policy where it doesn't matter if you ever pay off the debt. It doesn't matter if you ever balance the budget. This is not the Liberal Party of Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin. Uh, This is a a new Liberal Party that um, is the, the stereotype of attacks and spend liberal. You know, a lot of liberals recoil when somebody says, oh, you're a tax and spend liberal. They can't deny it here. Yeah. Uh, because it, it's the only two things. They've added a bunch of taxes. What they want to do is keep chipping away at um, successful industries. So they've, they've added extra taxes for banks, for insurance companies. Now, if you're a publicly traded company and you want to buy back your stocks, they're going to tax that. I, I can tell you from having lived in Quebec, a long time ago, but I lived in Quebec for a while. Me too. Uh, it, you know, well, what happened? Quebec used to be the economic engine. They taxed their companies into oblivion. And Quebec is not the economic engine. It's not the corporate headquarters it was because people just said, I'm leaving. I'll go somewhere else. That's right. And if you, if you don't think that can happen, there's a, a boat company in Kelowna that has moved to Texas. The, the TransCanada Energy is, is moving to uh, Colorado. These things can and do happen. At one point, because taxes were so high, Tim Hortons had moved to Delaware. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting you should observe the illiteracy factor in the government's planning on this first weekend of Financial Literacy Month as promoted by none less than the government of Canada. Brian, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for joining us again on the weekend. It's always a, a treat to have you. Thank you. Public safety campaign promises helped clinch victories for the mayors elect in our two biggest cities last month, Vancouver and Surrey. Here in Vancouver, Ken Sim promised to hire and deploy 100 new police officers and 100 new mental health nurses in our city. In Surrey, of course, the debate continues as to which color uniform is going to end up running the cop shop. Bizarre, and it still continues. Here to talk more about it is Dr. Rob Gordon, a criminologist and former police officer at SFU. Rob, good morning, and thanks for joining us. My pleasure entirely. It's good to have you with us, sir. Let's talk about Surrey first, because uh, it, it's a different kind of problem. In Vancouver, it's a, you're talking about uh, logistics, the ability to find people to fill all of those positions, etc. And we'll get to that in a second. But Surrey hasn't, well, they seem to have decided on the Surrey police force, and yet there's a strong public local sentiment that says, no way. How's this going to work out? What do you think? Well, it's uh, going to be a great challenge, there's no doubt about it. And it's already settling at the doorstep of the Solicitor General, which is appropriate because um, they didn't really handle it very well, I think, uh, at at the outset. Um, uh, I think there was a lot of wishful thinking going on, you know, that if you just wait it out, then uh, uh, we'll have another another administration in Surrey and we can start again. But... (laughs) It got too far down the line, and this is going to be one of the big issues. But there's a larger, there's a larger consideration, which, uh, which I think most people who are interested in police administration and organization are well aware of. And indeed, there is an all-party committee uh, that's produced a report on, which is uh, what we do about policing in B.C. generally, and, and more particularly, what we do about policing in the, the capital region and Metro Vancouver, uh, and for that matter, the big conurbation, which is the Okanagan uh, area up and down the, the lakes. So the, the main ones, though, without shadow of a doubt, are Metro Vancouver and Metro Victoria. Um, they're all uh, just sitting on a time bomb, quite right. frankly, uh, and I'm hoping that the, that the reports coming out of the all-party committee will endorse what should happen, which is a rationalization of policing, a reorganization of policing in the province, but particularly the large metropolitan areas. Rob, is there also a problem with simply the availability of boots on the ground? In other words, prospective hires, if they're trying to hire new 100 new officers, for example, in Vancouver. And of course, the Surrey police force is attempting to uh, strengthen its ranks. You mentioned the Okanagan and, and Vancouver Island, the capital district. I mean, there's a lot of demand for uniformed officers. And frankly, I don't think anywhere near enough recruits to to oblige oh no that, that's for sure that's a major challenge but you see what what folks from elsewhere in canada and that's a that's a recruiting ground that is um obvious um what folks in other parts of canada would do is look at the uh, professionalism of particular police services and if they see a large regional force then 
it becomes a much more attractive option um, for qualified applicants. There are a number of advantages. Uh, recruiting and training uh, and retention is, is one of the advantages. People are more likely to want to remain, um, to join and want to remain in a large professional police service where the opportunities are uh, much greater uh, than in smaller police services. Uh, th this has been shown uh, in, in lots of jurisdictions. Um, it, it's just, it's a no-brainer, really. <laughs> if you talk to, to police managers and police uh, administrators in other parts of, of Canada, uh, you, they scratch their heads over what we've got here in B.C., have for years uh, been puzzled by this balkanization that we have of policing, particularly in the large metropolitan areas. So how do, I, how, how, how do we get out of this, though? What, how do we unbalkanize ourselves? I know it's a simplistic-sounding question, but it's key. No, it is key. And, and uh, it, what it will require uh, is action on the part of the provincial government. They're going to have to bite the bullet on this. They've sat on it for years and years hoping it would go away, uh, and it hasn't. Uh, it keeps coming back, and it comes back in uh, a range of inefficiencies. The most obvious one um, was the uh, problems around the time of the, uh, of the Picton pig farm problems. And the Opal report that came out of that was very clear in, in what, uh, what was thought to be the solution. Um, provincial government's got to step up and got to say, look, uh, this is enough's enough. Stop now. We're going to have um, a single police service governing either the province or the regions in the province, uh, and uh, let's stop debating it and get on with it. And, and most of the, I think you'd find that most of the serving police officers would embrace that. Interesting, because certainly the voters in the Okanagan and here in Vancouver and elsewhere have indicated their displeasure with the status quo, and basically, especially in Vancouver, gave a resounding minority to a group that said enough is enough. So the public appetite might help in this particular instance, don't you think? Oh, I think it is a, it's a key to it. Um, and it was clear to my, my mind that it, popped up in the recent election Yes, um, in a sort of roundabout way. It wasn't directly addressed. Uh, there, are, there are certain terrors associated with the change like this. It's, it's massive, and one of the, but it's doable. Let me just say that. I mean, it, it, give me the keys, I'll start the car. Sure. It, it, it's, it's not that hard to do. Um, and recruitment is an issue. Recruitment is an issue in Vancouver as a single police service. Uh, and, and there was a lot of discussion uh, just a few weeks ago about how you drag the remnants of the Surrey Police Service across to uh, across to Vancouver to fill their need. And that kind of um, that kind of domestic yeah. competition is so counterproductive in terms of keeping the public safe. Rob, I have to leave it there because I'm fresh out of time, but I'm very grateful for yours. And I look okay. forward to an opportunity to pursue this uh, this this topic with you, because, as you suggest, it's just beginning. Thanks very much, Rob. You're welcome. Senator. 
Family doctors in provinces right across Canada have been closing their practices either to retire early due to burnout or to work in hospitals or other specialty areas where they can earn more and do less paperwork. Attracting new doctors to family medicine has also become more challenging. We've learned on this program before medical students are increasingly choosing not to study family medicine. They opt instead to focus on more specialty areas of medicine that come with more dollars. Thus, the deal for doctors in B.C. Here to talk more about it is the executive director of B.C. Family Doctors. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Dr. Renee Fernandez. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Dr. Fernandez. Uh, the deal is it's a good one from the point of view of numbers. It's a pretty healthy raise from 250 to 385. What are you hearing from your peers in the wake of the announcement now a couple of weeks ago? We're hearing from family doctors across the province that this new funding model for family medicine will have a profound impact for ensuring that family doc medicine clinics can stay open. Um, And so doctors are very excited to hear about this announcement. So the, the point that we had Dr. Brady Bouchard uh, from Saskatoon on with us a few weeks ago, Dr. Fernandez, and he's the president of the Fam- College of Family Physicians and uh, t- talked about this, this whole recruitment aspect of the young med students coming out of the programs across the country, many of whom are just ignoring family medicine, opting for higher paying, less uh, bureaucratic uh, aspects of medicine. Do you find that to be the case? And do you think this might deter some of that? movement? Absolutely. We know that family medicine clinics are really important healthcare spaces across the province and across the country. However, we've seen that funding for those clinics has not kept pace with the costs of operating those clinics. So family doctors are increasingly unable to pay for their staff, cover their leases, pay for equipment and supplies. And we've seen that with with the results of clinics closing across the province. As Dr. Bouchard pointed out, that is significantly impacting our ability to recruit medical students and residents into what we think of as traditional family medicine. Sure. This model is a major step forward. Okay. And um, are you hearing, are you getting any feedback? I know it's quite early in the program, but are you getting any uh, indications at all from the medical student community that this is uh, impacting positively? We're certainly hearing it from medical students and residents already in the first week of this announcement that this not only would encourage them to go into family medicine if that's truly what they want to do, but for those early practice graduates who are working in other parts of the healthcare system right now that have the skills to do this job, they now feel empowered to come back and do the work that they were trained to do. Doctor, when you were a medical student taking all of those curses and learning all of that stuff, how much time was spent on being a small, successful small business operator of any description? Absolutely zero. Family doctors spend 10 to 11 years of training before we enter practice, making us the most trained professionals in primary care and well set up to work with other members of the healthcare team. But absolutely no time is spent on how to run a family medicine clinic or around the business of truly running a small business. So how do the docs educate themselves? Do they go to seminars? I'm assuming because of that uh, essential ignorance of, 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 the, of the realities of being in, in practice, they have to uh, educate themselves then. Absolutely. So as a younger family physician, I learned from my more senior colleagues. I took some you know, weekend courses around how to do this. But, you know, over the years, as every small business owner will tell you, the time and complexity required to operate a small business, or in our case, a clinic, 
has increased exponentially. And so it's increasingly difficult to run the clinic off the side of our desk. Um, as a result of that, this new payment model reflects the work needed to run a family medicine clinic, the indirect care provided to patients, but we have more work to do to ensure that there's a menu of options for how clinics are operated in the province. There's another uh, interim uh, measure that's also been taken, uh, an, an, an advancement of, of a cash, a lump sum of cash to many family physicians to alleviate some of the stresses brought on by uh, being a small business operator in these inflationary times. It's a grant, it's a, a one-time effort, but what did you make of that? So in late August, the province of BC, Doctors of BC and BC Family Doctors announced stabilization funding to clinics, exactly as you described. We were hearing from a significant number of clinics that were planning to close by the end of this calendar year, mm-hmm. beyond the ones that closed already. So it's making a difference. So let's talk about the loot involved. It's a big pay raise from two and a half to three eighty-five. Uh, are we going to be able to? Is this? Uh, are you hearing from your colleagues in other provinces? Wait a second here. Now you're getting a, you're getting a little too sweet on the pay side. You're going to start stealing our docs. This is unfair. Or they're going well. Now that you've done it, maybe we should start playing catch-up ball. Which of the two do you hear more of? So we're hearing a significant amount of interest from physicians in other provinces, less around the dollars for the payment model and more about the details of it. Because at the heart of it, those increased dollars for this payment model are not going to go to family doctors' pockets. They're going to go to our staff, they're going to cover our leases, and they're going to cover our equipment. Sure. That's because uh, at the current pay schedule, uh, making a decent living after paying all expenses and a net income that represents all of those years of training that you described earlier, it's been kind of tough, hasn't it? It's been absolutely difficult. Family doctors go into this type of work because we want to provide really high quality care over people's lifetimes and providing the type of care that British Columbians need and deserve require high functioning family medicine clinics. This payment model is the first step towards making that happen. And uh, back to the young medical students uh, who are entering the programs or in the programs now uh, and considering family, uh, reconsidering perhaps for the first time seriously family medicine as uh, as a remunerative, successfully remunerative uh, situation that it's, it's realistic to contemplate other than perhaps a specialty. Absolutely. Medical students graduate from medical school these days with upwards of $200,000 in debt. Sure. It's simply not a reasonable decision currently for them to do this type of family medicine work. They're, They're being smart. They're voting with their feet. They're doing other things. And so this payment model provides the opportunity for them to do the type of work that they want to do, pay down those high debt loads, and actually provide the type of care that they have told us they want to. And uh, in terms of, of interest levels, then in staying in British Columbia, because that's also been a problem. Uh, we, we graduate uh, X number of doctors every year in this province, and not all of them stay. In fact, some years we're almost in a net loss situation. Might that be reversed? We're certainly hoping the exodus of family physicians from the province will decrease. And we're also hoping that the exodus of family doctors from that family medicine work will decrease. We have 6,800 family doctors practicing in the province, and less than half of those are what we're doing what we traditionally think of as family medicine. So there's actually not a shortage of family doctors in BC. There's a shortage of family doctors doing this type of work. Ah, well, that's interesting because you and I both know this morning that there are, what, one in five British Columbians. That's a million people in this province who don't have a family doctor, and not, us, not many of them are happy about that either. 
as they should be. We know that having a family doctor is a significant part of having good quality health outcomes, leading to a lot longer life expectancy. And over the last few years, with almost a million British Columbians without a family doctor, we've been seeing the impacts and the ripple effect of that throughout the healthcare system. Dr. Fernandez, we believe this will serve patients as well as physicians. Any hints for anybody listening who doesn't have a family doc desperate to get one? So currently there is a registry of family physicians in the province that are accepting patients, not many. But if you are looking for a family doctor, please check out the Pathways BC website, which is broken down by community, and will help you give some assistance to where um, you could possibly receive family medicine care right now or episodic walk-in clinic care if you're not able to find a family. So a Google search, quick Google search for Pathways BC will get you to that door, right? Absolutely. Dr. Fernandez, thanks very much for this. Great to have you on the program this morning. We appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Have a good day. After decades of attempts to power cars with energy from the sun, the solar automotive age might finally be upon us. Uh, The catch is the amount of solar energy that can actually be captured by solar panels on a car's roof is limited, which is why the tech has yet to take off. But there's a company in Germany called Sono Motors that has uh, cracked the code and they're going to start releasing a $25,000 electric SUV called the Scion that's covered pretty much bumper to bumper in solar cells. Here to talk about more about it is a guy who's been on EVs for a very, very long time. Always a pleasure to welcome Jeremy Cato, veteran automotive journalist, award-winning automotive journalist to our program uh, from CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, good morning. Welcome back. Hi, Sterling. You don't have power? Uh, we, ha- no, we have power in New Westminster, but there's a lot of power oh. outages this morning. Surrey, Victoria, Nanaimo, Parksville, uh, and 150,000 of us without power this morning, Jeremy. Quite a blower last night. Yeah, well, my internet went down a little bit last night, but other than that, North Vancouver seems to have power. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So this uh, this business of the solar-powered EV, I mean, I was being a little snooty and flippant when I said, okay, so you own a solar-powered car, and you have a day like yesterday, we, we, we get pretty much flooded from the heavens. How far are you going to get? Well, it's not just solar-powered. It's a plug-in solar-powered car, correct? It's a, it's a hybrid, but a different kind, right? Yeah, it's another one of these uh, crackpot <laughs> inventions that, you know, a few people will, will pay attention to. But it, it sounds to me, having done a little bit of digging into it, that this is a, a company looking for investors uh, rather than customers. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, so what, what do you think in terms of there are there are keeners out there who are uh, anxious to put their money where their green sentiments are? Is this going to take off? Well, I mean, you know, everyone's looking for the next Tesla right now sure. because it, you know, if you can get if you can buy a penny stock and turn it into the, you know, the most valuable car company in the world, well, that's terrific. But for every one Tesla, there's there's thousands of Sonos and and all the rest of them. So, I I wouldn't I wouldn't count on the practicality of a car made up of solar panels. What I would say is that most car companies are, if if they haven't already, are already working on incorporating solar panels into the, for example, the roofs of their cars right. to help to, to help offset the uh, the battery usage of a, a battery electric car. So, you know, Sonos is like, you know, this uh, <clears throat> this this technology. Um, if you start digging into the weight of solar panels and the the efficiency of them. 
uh, you start to realize that, that there's a limit uh, to uh, the capability of these kinds of cars. And then the second thing is that uh, you know electric vehicles are mostly a northern hemisphere phenomenon. Okay, uh, and that's where the winters are the darkest. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know. So if you live up in Whitehorse, a solar paneled car. Yeah. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. The land so, of the midnight sun. <laughs> great yeah. in the summertime, but. Yeah. And, and having spent some time actually testing vehicles in the great, great north of both Europe and, and North America, I can tell you that uh, this is a phenomenon that would that might work better at the uh, at the southern hemisphere, sure, uh, or at the equator, but not here. But you know these things. You know what's interesting about this, Sterling, more than anything, is that it drives curiosity and innovation. Sure. So I'm being a bit. You know, I've been covering the auto industry and its products for you know a long time, and. And I've seen these things come and go. But what I do also see is that the engineers and the scientists that that work on these problems in a realistic fashion take a look at the ideas here and then adapt them. So to go back to the Tesla analogy, Tesla changed the auto industry by making electric vehicles cool and and uh, and interesting. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk and his millions of Twitter followers got people excited about electric vehicles. So we can be a little bit cynical as journalists who've been seeing a lot of these things come and go, but they are interesting in that they do stimulate the interest of the people who can actually do things that are practical. Interesting. Looking across the country at the top-selling EVs right now, of course, British Columbia, one of those <laughs> jurisdictions in which more there was the highest percentage per capita of EV sales. But just, just a quick example, for example, looking at some of the other provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador, most popular EV there, the Hyundai Kona. In New Brunswick, it's the Hyundai Ioniq and the Tesla 3, Manitoba Tesla 3, BC Tesla 3, Alberta Tesla Tesla 3, Ontario, Tesla 3. Tesla is the most popular selling vehicle in this country. Yes? Uh, yes. And, you know, it, the Tesla's cool. Um, and and uh, the, the early adopters who are buying electric vehicles mostly are fairly wealthy people. And, uh, and, and consequently, Tesla, Tesla is the one. Tesla is the company that people talk about. Uh, now you're seeing a breakthrough in uh, with other automakers slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ford Motor, for example, is now the number two EV seller in North America, mm. which might surprise people because most of us think of Ford as the pickup company. Sure. Um, but again, if you want to buy a Lightning pickup, which is an all-electric Ford pickup, um, you know you've got a waiting. <laughs> you've got probably a year to eighteen months to wait for that. And to go back to the Tesla question. Um, Tesla keeps putting off the arrival of its Cybertruck constantly, and now that the CEO of Tesla is seems to be more concerned with Twitter than with his uh, his car company, um, we'll have to see how that drives ahead. Anyway, Tesla is the cool company, and it's a very valuable brand because Tesla made electric vehicles mainstream and cool yeah and now, it's really that it's a marketing thing as much as it's a technology thing absolutely now i did mention a hyundai ionic model and mm. there was also the hyundai kona you've just done a review of the new kia ev these are much more affordable generally speaking than teslas this would suggest the market the demand for evs is broadening and and manufacturers are looking at the the capability of people to buy them and just creating lower cost vehicles yeah, I mean, really, until you get mainstream electric vehicles um, that 
on out the door prices under thirty thousand dollars, you know, they won't be mainstream. But that's coming as as volumes go up and costs go down. Now the challenge here is as much about the technology as it is about the supply chain to supply the technology. You might notice, for example, that the government of Canada has started to um, become interested in in lithium mining companies. Yes. It was never interested in before, uh, but is now ordered three Chinese companies to divest themselves of uh, ownership of Canadian companies because it's now seen as... um, you know the the raw materials that go into electric vehicles are now seen as a competitive advantage and a national security issue. Yeah, trying so, to rem- trying to remember the last time or the first time you on this program recommended lithium stocks. We were talking cars, and you said, "As well, by the way, friends, you might want to take a look at lithium down the road. It's going to be a biggie." And that's years and ago, Jeremy. And and look at look what's happened. And copper. I mean, you know, all those <laughs> copper's the best. Uh, you know, material to trans, uh, transmit electricity. So, you know, copper, aluminum, lithium. So, you know, it, it, these are the raw materials that go into it. The technology can be there. Um, like what my experience interviewing and test driving, uh, interviewing engineers and test driving uh, new vehicles and technologies for a long, long time, is that you give an engineer enough money and enough time, they will solve any problem. And that's what we're seeing in the auto industry, because clearly Tesla demonstrated that, that the, the future of excitement in the auto industry is electric. Yeah. And so, you know, even Toyota, which for at least two decades has said that the only real viable electrification of the automobile is a hybrid, has now gone full on into, into bringing electric vehicles to market. So that's, that's the next stage. The problem, of course, to go back to, I don't want to sound like a broken record, is the raw materials and the cost, and, and those things are intertwined. Indeed. Jeremy, always a pleasure. Let me recommend your website to our listeners, catocarguy.com. And friends, Jeremy's last name is spelled C-A-T-O, so catocarguy.com. And Jeremy, always a pleasure. Thanks ever so much. Thanks, Sterling. We'll talk again, I hope. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.